In this episode of Balancing the Christian Life, we talk about leading Christians with Don Truex. Welcome to Balancing the Christian Life. I'm Dr. Kenny Embry. Join me as we discover how to be better Christians and people in the digital age. What does it mean to really be a leader? I've been turning this question over in my mind recently because I'm not sure I really understand what that means. In culture, we often talk about political leaders and leaders of different organizations, and what I'm struck with is how often the conversation goes immediately to power. Who has the power to make you do something you may or may not want to do? Often that becomes a pretty big debate, especially in political circles. But when I look to the leadership in Christianity, the creator of the universe has given us the opportunity to simply say no. While politics, culture, and so many around us are trying to force us somewhere by whatever means they can, God, the one with all the power in the universe, is trying to lead us. But we always have the opportunity to choose a different route. I also know some bright, good guys who are trying to be spiritual leaders, but are just missing something. Sometimes I can pinpoint the problem. Maybe they don't see their own weaknesses, or maybe they don't have a clear idea how to take the next step. But often, I just don't know what advice to give. So how do we lead more like God and less like the political or business worlds? That may or may not perplex you as much as it does me. But when I was thinking about spiritual leadership, one of the names that came to mind was Don Truex. Don is an evangelist in the Tampa area and someone who has both taught spiritual leadership as well as being a spiritual leader. I also knew he would probably understand what most people miss. So, Don, how would you describe what leadership is? You know, the common definition that, uh, for example, John Maxwell used, he actually borrowed it from J.O. Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leadership, is that leadership is influence. Maxwell said leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. And there are a lot of variations on that. Uh, for example, uh, <clears throat> management guru Peter Drucker said, the only definition of a leader is someone who has followers. And that's an interesting way of looking at that. I, I once read uh, a little plaque that said, he who thinks he leads but has no one following is only taking a walk. <laughs> there's there's a, lot, a lot of truth in that. Yeah. Bill Gates once said that leaders are people who have the power to empower others. And I like that as well. But I think my favorite is uh, from Stephen Forbes. Mm -hmm. And Forbes said, leadership is a process of influence which maximizes the efforts of others towards the achievement of a goal. And I like that. <clears throat> I think it encapsulates in those three little three little areas, that it's a process of leadership, it maximizes others, and we're working toward a goal. Because it sounds to me like that's a pretty good definition of what Jesus did while he was on earth. Yeah. That he exercised influence, he empowered and made others better by virtue of that influence, and there was always a goal that was set, that was set before. Why do you think it's important to have a goal? So that we don't just wander aimlessly. We don't want to just take a walk. Yeah. You know, people who lead, you think about that. Everybody listening to your podcast has influence in some area of their life, whether that's a mom or a dad or a grandparent, a husband, a wife, children with their siblings, uh, preachers, shepherds, deacons, whether it's employers, employees, friends, and that list just goes on and on and on. In all of those roles where you exercise some, some degree of leadership and influence, yeah. you're trying to accomplish something with that. Yeah. And hopefully you're wanting to accomplish something that not only is beneficial, but it helps the person that you're leading in some way. Yeah. If, if as leaders, we're not making others better by virtue of our presence and by our interaction with them, then something's wrong. Something's wrong in the leadership model. We often talk about casting a vision when it comes to leadership. What do they mean by that? And, and how would you go about doing that? Yeah. Well, that's a challenge. When you think about it in a local church, we say that shepherds need to cast a vision for the church. Yeah. Well, first and fundamentally, the vision has to be whatever the vision is of the New Testament yeah. for the church. Yeah, yeah. Whatever that role is. I think, you know, predominantly uh, evangelism and teaching 
take center stage in that, but there are other elements of that. It's not only that that biblical vision of what's laid out in the text, but then it, of course, is what are those steps that have to be taken to support that vision? What's yeah. going to have to be done to get us there? Yeah. For example, in the in the congregation where I am a few years ago in the leadership, we identified four or five areas in particular that we thought we needed to be thinking five and ten years down the road. Right. And so we identified those, and then we formed some groups within the leadership, and we worked on those areas, trying to think about, okay, where do we want to be and how are we going to get there? Mm-hmm. To me, Kenny, that's that's casting the vision. It's, it's taking the biblical vision for what we ought to be, either as a church or individuals, as a family, whatever it may be, and then trying to think, okay, what, <clears throat> what do we put in place in order to make that happen? Just out of curiosity, what were the four or five different roles that you are different parts that you all found interesting or that, that you wanted to start planning for? Evangelism was first on that list. Mm-hmm. We try every year to increase, for example, financially what we do domestically and abroad, helping to support the preaching the gospel. Yeah. We try to put plans in place we want to develop among us uh, individuals who are evangelistically minded. Yeah. We, we talk about wanting that to just be the DNA of who we are. Yeah. So evangelism. We, yeah. we talked about leadership, where we are currently with our shepherds and with our deacons. But we also talked about how do we plan for the future? How do we, from an early age, encourage and inspire young men to have that as a goal in their life? To not start thinking about that when they're 40 and 50 years old. How do we get them thinking about that before they get married? Because that woman, right. that wife, is going to be such a critical element to whether or not they can be an effective leader. Yeah. So we talked about leadership, we talked about evangelism, we talked about our physical plant, we talked about some things that we believe we're going to have to have uh, some alteration uh, for the future Mm -hmm. to accommodate some things that we'd like to do. It's impossible to divorce the culture from our conversation. Whenever we talk about what leadership is, it almost always includes the business literature that's out there. In the business literature, they make a big differentiation between management and leadership. Right. Is there a difference between being a spiritual manager versus being a spiritual leader? Boy, there absolutely is. It is night and day. And I'm not saying that those two sometimes aren't unwittingly mixed together. Yes. But there is, certainly from a a biblical perspective, a difference. Mm -hmm. Jesus did not say, I am the good manager. I am the good CEO. I am the good director. Uh, I am the good CFO of this organization. Uh, He did not say that. Right. He said, I am the good shepherd. Yeah. Think about it this way, Kenny. If management was all that's really needed in our church, then we could hire that done. We we wouldn't have to have elders and shepherds to do that. We could hire a business manager. We could hire a a CFO. Mm -hmm. They could just make those administrative kind of decisions. If that's all we needed, then we could just hire that. I believe it is much better now. But I can also tell you that for a long time in my life, I think that was kind of the view that the church had of its leaders. They were kind of a board of directors, CFOs, managers, because you'd hear it in prayers. Yeah. How many times have you heard the prayer in a, in a public setting? God, please bless our elders and help them make wise decisions. <laughs> right? Well- yeah, we do. Yeah. We want that, don't we, Don? We do need to make wise decisions. Right. That is absolutely important. We do not want leaders making bad decisions. No, we don't. I served as an elder in this church for a decade. And on the Sunday that I was appointed, I asked the church, I said, so often we hear that prayer that I just mentioned. I said, I want to ask you to pray a different prayer for me. And it is, please bless our shepherds and help them to Watch for our souls, seek the lost, bandage the wounded, care and love all, and lead us in such a way that if we follow them, we will go to heaven. That's the difference between a spiritual leader and a manager, I think, in a nutshell. Churches want to be secure, and they want leaders who will truly lead, and that they know truly care for their souls and are watching for their souls, because after all, that's that's the commission in Hebrews 13. These individuals watch for your souls as those who must give an account. In that business of the difference between management and leadership, as, as I was thinking about that, Kenny, I, I thought about, to me, one of the quintessential verses in the New Testament about leadership, particularly in a local church, 
is Acts, Acts 20 and 28, where, where Paul told elders, I mean, we know this is a direction to shepherds in a church. You know, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock over those, uh, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, shepherd the church of God. He purchased the church with his blood. And as I've thought about that verse, you know, I, I think, you know, that, that verse just contains so much. And I'm not sure that we parse it out in the leadership side, perhaps as much as we should. This is a divine appointment. Mm-hmm. I mean, God has always chosen leadership because of its essential nature. Moses was chosen to lead the people of God, uh, the raising up of the judges, the selection of King Saul and David and Solomon, the prophets, the apostles, the Holy Spirit through the word of God and through what he reveals there makes you overseers. But connected with that divine appointment is you shepherd the church of God. And that's important. These are God's people. They're not ours. This is God's church. It's not ours. No, it's it's mine in the sense that I'm a part of it, and this is my family. This yeah. is my spiritual family. But just as in Matthew 25, when the master entrusted something that was valuable to him to the shepherding, to the stewardship of someone else, so the Lord has with under-shepherds in, yeah. in, in churches. It's impossible for us not to look at leadership and define leadership in terms of our cultures. We're just a culture that's enamored with really charismatic leaders. Frankly, as we think about what a leader is, is there any bleed over for a spiritual leader that we can learn from these kind of books and this kind of literature? Absolutely. But I've always believed in reading widely. It doesn't mean that I'm going to accept everything that I read, right? but I believe that I can learn from almost anything I read because so many of those lessons are transferable. That is, you can make spiritual applications from them. Uh Uh-huh. I'll give you an example. For me, one of the most influential things that I ever read from the business community and have applied to this to spiritual leadership was a book by Robert Greenleaf and Robert Spears, simply called Servant Leadership. I was in a gospel meeting somewhere, and on the last night, a brother came by and he handed me that. And he said, you know, from some of the things you've said this week, I think you might enjoy this. Hmm. And so I did a little research into them, and they they established a, a business model uh, half a century ago. Their headquarters is in Indianapolis, still functioning today. But they wrote a business book called Servant Leadership, and their philosophy was that if you want to be a success, a true success in the business world, you will do it through the eyes and through the heart of a servant for those whom you influence and, and who work with you. Their book centers on a series of 10, 12 questions that they say you need to ask in the business community. And I, I asked them in, in spiritual leadership. I just took them and asked them and applied them in spiritual leadership. Questions like this. Do people believe you're willing to sacrifice your own self-interest for the good of the group? That's an important question. Yeah. Because if we're asking a flock to follow us, they, they've got to know that. Do people believe that you want to hear their ideas and will value them? It is, do you listen? Right. And are you willing to listen to something that isn't? Do people believe you'll understand and appreciate what's happening in their lives and how it affects them? Well, that's empathy. Do people believe you have a strong awareness of what's going on? That's an important question for leaders to ask, particularly shepherds in a church. Mm-hmm. Are we aware? Because we're interacting with our flock to the point that we do know what's going on in their lives. Yeah. And, and that list goes that list goes on and on. I think there are a couple that are extraordinarily important. Uh, in, in particular, do others believe you're preparing the organization to make a positive difference in the world? I think that's such an important one because that speaks to the future. Are you doing something proactively to help prepare leadership for the future? And so, you know, I, the answer to your question is that yes, that, that is absolutely. The, there's much that we can learn from, from those kinds of things as we think about them. At the end of the spectrum, there's some dangers of that, of course. Yes, yes. But there's much that we can learn. Well, and I, I guess that's the other half of this question, which is, I know a lot of people that, that will criticize things because they do not come from the Bible directly. And, you know, I, one of my favorite business books is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective sure. People, which, quite frankly, Covey was very transparent. He said he got it from the Bible. Yep. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it almost seems like most business literature is making a round trip back to the Bible. Right. Um, what's the danger here, Don? Well. There may be many dangers, but when I, when I hear that question, 
my mind goes to the fact that in business, the bottom line is money. Yeah. And in spiritual leadership, the bottom line is always souls. And to me, the danger is that if we don't keep that focus and emphasis, then we can become unduly concerned about quantifiables. And the Lord's church is more than just quantifiables. It's more than just, it's more than just numbers on an attendance board yeah, or numbers on a contribution board. I've, I've tried to talk so much about that, Kenny. If you visit our, our building, for example, uh, you are not going to find a board that has attendance numbers on it. You're not going to, <laughs> in our bulletin, you're not going to find attendance numbers. And it's not that those things are unimportant because with every number, there's a soul. So mm-hmm. I understand that. I understand that. Yeah. And we do know what the numbers are because if you can recognize trends and that's important. Yeah. But we don't want to send the message. I don't want to send the message that that's what really matters, that the numbers really matter. And to me, that's the danger of that, that we get so enamored with those kind of quantifiables that we lose, lose sight of the fact that we're in the people business. We're in the soul business. Yeah. And that's the difference. Are there numbers that you think make a difference for us to keep up with? Yes. Uh, because again, with every number, there's a soul. Yeah. Are we having more people watching online? If we are, uh, why is that? Uh, you know, I think there are a lot of things that can, that can play into that. Financial numbers matter. You know, we have a budget because we're trying to, we're trying to accomplish some things primarily. I mean, we, we want, we want the preponderance of our funds to go toward evangelism. I mean, that's, we have goals about that. And so that's important for us to see, Mm -hmm. but it's like, it's like the Fitbit, you know, the, the steps are important. They matter, but there is a bigger issue. That's, that's health. Think about that. Just we, we always talked about it. You know, I grew up hearing about the steps of salvation uh-huh. and uh, that's mighty important. They yeah. are, but it's kind of like when you go to a little tiny airport and you walk the steps up into a plane, those steps are really important, but the plane's going to take me where I want to go. <laughs> and so the steps are extraordinarily important, but it's what I do in Christ being in Christ. And then what I do in Christ, that's going to get me from earth to heaven. All of those things are important. They all have their place, they all have their role, but they feed into the bigger picture of what we're about. We just want to be really careful. To me, that's the danger of the, of the, the business analogy, that we don't lose sight of what our big picture is. In business, there are what we call acceptable losses, that, that there's, there's a cost. If it costs more to make it than you would actually make from it, mm-hmm. then you don't do it. it, it it's not worth your time. But, but it reminds me again of that, the prodigal son, the lost sheep, the lost coin. It was not worth it to leave one to leave 90 sheep, 99 sheep to get one. That is a bad business undertaking. It's worth it. When it comes to souls, there are no acceptable losses. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. And you leave the 90 and 9 <clears throat> because the one is of tremendous value. Churches have to be leaders shepherds in the local church have to be so understanding of that. There was a time several years ago, Kenny, when, when in our church family, uh, among the leadership, among the elders, we really, we made a, a commitment to the church that we were going to be shepherds of souls first and foremost. And publicly, we made a promise to the church that no one would fall through the cracks in this church. That we, were, that we had put among the shepherds, we had put, put things in place whereby if we did our job, that would not happen. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean that everybody would stay faithful to God, but it, it does mean that nobody would leave the Lord without knowledge, without effort to restore them. Mm-hmm. And, and I, think we've, I think we've kept that. And that's, <clears throat> that's the point. With souls, there are no acceptable losses. There are heartbreaking losses, devastating losses. Losses that keep you up at night, but no acceptable losses. It's impossible for me not to, to think about family. I think it is the most common metaphor in the New Testament. Uh, it is so synonymous that God calls us, God calls himself our father. And I've said a couple of times before, and you're welcome to disagree with this. I think 
we were given families to explain a spiritual truth. Mm-hmm. I think the that this that families are a construct. Um, what connection do you see between being a leader in your own house and being a leader in a local congregation? Well, those two are absolutely inseparable from, simply because what you are at home will eventually and inevitably make itself known in the church. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely uh, without doubt that that will happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may hide that for a while. You may shield that for a while. But eventually, what you are at home will be made known. It will be made manifest in the church. Now, that can be a great thing, or that can be a really terrible thing. And yeah. I've seen both of those, <laughs> as probably you <clears throat> you have as well. Yeah. There, there are two sides to it, I think, Kenny. The first, you know, the first is obviously the side of leadership ability. And, and the Bible speaks to that. I mean, when Paul wrote to his, his protege, Timothy, he said, look, when you're, when you're looking for shepherds in the local church, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, because if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I, I don't know how Paul could have said that any more plain than he did. The home and away is a Petri dish. Eh, that doesn't sound right. That, you shouldn't say your house is a Petri dish. <laughs> <clears throat> no wife is going to appreciate that at all. Uh, uh, but your home is a proving ground. Your home is a proving ground Yeah, where you, you show whether or not you have those leadership abilities that are transferable to a local church. You know how to deal with challenges. You know how to deal with real life. You know how to deal with, with individuals over the long term. Yeah. And all that comes with that, as you said a moment ago, lives are messy. Everybody's life's messy. My life's messy. Everybody's life is messy at some point in time. And so you deal with that over the long term. Now, the other side of that, I mean, that leadership ability is certainly critical. But the other side of that, I think, is is the personality side. Mm-hmm. The personality side. Because, I mean, let's, let's be honest here, a person who is dominant and overbearing in his home life, he he is going to be dominant and overbearing when he's put in a position of leadership in the church. Mm-hmm. I've said many, many times that one of the, one of the greatest attributes of the the eldership in the church where I serve is that in all the years, almost three decades that I've been here now, never once have we had a chief, chief shepherd and never once have we had anybody advocating for the job. <laughs> they understand that there is one chief shepherd and it's none of us. Right. And so... <clears throat> that's that's important, but the other side of that's true too. If a man is caring and compassionate at home, if he is full of grace and mercy to his children and to his wife, if he is understanding, then that's where he's going to be in the family of God. Because as you said a moment ago, the family was given to us as a construct for this relationship that we have with God. We talk all the time here about being a church family, mm-hmm. and so those characteristics are clearly clearly going to be brought into that. And so that's why it's so important, Kenny, when you're, when you're looking for shepherds in a local church, what do you look for? Well, you look for somebody who's already shepherding in their life. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't take a man and appoint him into the eldership and hope that he becomes a shepherd. You look for someone who is already shepherding with compassion, understanding with that combination of of strength and kindness that has to be there. Somebody who's already shepherding by feeding and leading and protecting his home and maybe the other relationships that he has. Mm -hmm. You look for somebody who is already shepherding. I I think the greatest thing I ever heard along that line uh, was several years ago from Sewell Hall. Sewell was visiting with our church family, and he said, you know, he said, men sometimes talk to me about wanting, I, w- I want to go overseas and preach the gospel. I want to go overseas and teach yeah. and evangelize. Yeah. And he said, my question always is, what are you doing right now in evangelism? Because there is nothing about salt water that's going to make you evangelistic. <laughs> I like that. I do too. I love that. And, and the point that I always make with that is, there is nothing about an appointment ceremony that makes someone a true shepherd at heart. He already has that, and that's what you look for. And so in your house, a man who's a leader in his house, those are the kinds of leadership traits you're looking for. Look at his family. Look at the way he deals with his family. Look at the the happiness that his family has in following his leadership. 
can tell an awful lot if you just open your eyes and look. Good organizations groom the leaders that are going to su- succeed the, the guy who's in right now. Right. Do you think that's something we should be doing as well? Yes, we certainly should. I think so much about the statement made by John the Baptizer when he said, he must increase, I must decrease. And you know what? That's, that's true for all of us. You know, here I am. Can I, but I, I mean, clearly, I'm on the back nine of life. I mean, I am. I, I've, been a, I've been preaching for 45 years now. I've been a part of this church for almost three decades. But that's not going to last forever. Mm-hmm. And I understand fully there are others who must increase as I decrease over the next several years. I will not always be able to do what I'm doing now. Somebody asked me a while back, they said, what would happen at Temple Terrace if something happened to you? And I said, well, they'll have my funeral on Friday and they'll have church on Sunday. Yeah. And that's the way that should be. That, that doesn't mean that I, I hope people remember me and I hope I've made an impact for good. But absolutely, we've got to be preparing, be preparing the generations to come. We don't do much about that, Kenny. We, we have training classes in our churches. We've got one going on right now in our church mm-hmm. uh, for preparing young men to serve in public worship. That is extremely important. That matters. They need to be able to do that. Yeah. They need those opportunities to learn and to be instructed by capable teachers. Sure. But how often do we do we have a gathering of men about leadership? We want to talk to you about leadership. We want to talk to you about what you need to be doing to prepare for future leadership in the family of God. Very, very seldom. Yeah. Very seldom. There's some young men that I baptized in this church, and and I've told them after the excitement of that <clears throat> dies down, and a couple of weeks later, I'll, I've talked to them and said, "Listen, I, I want to talk to you about your future. Here's what I see for you in the future, mm-hmm. and I want you to begin thinking about this because the decisions you make now, the person you decide to marry, these are all going to have an impact on your future role in the kingdom. But I believe God is God has blessed you with some abilities that can be used for generations for a generation here." We need to be doing those kinds of things, thinking in those terms. We need to be identifying men who clearly have capabilities and talking about that and letting men express what they believe their deficiencies are. Because when you talk to men about this, almost immediately, I mean, fundamentally, people are humble about these kinds of things. And so almost immediately, they're going to say, well, you know what? I think, I, I think I've got a weakness in this area. That's Okay. Nothing wrong with that. Let's work on that. I mean, we can, we can work to shore that up. One of the finest shepherds that we have in this church, who when we first talked to him about the possibility of becoming a shepherd, said, I've got a weakness in this area. And we said, you know what? We can help with that. And so we did. And he's one of the finest shepherds that we have. And so, yes, we've got to be thinking about that. And I think, Kenny, we've got to be thinking about that more, more than we have in the past. Leadership is important to God. We've got to, we've got to remember that. Leadership matters to God. I always think about, I preached a sermon here not long ago, out of Acts 1, with that episode where they've got to appoint a a replacement apostle for Judas, okay? And Peter says, it is necessary that we do this. Why was that necessary? They already had other apostles. Yeah. They had a clear leader in the apostle Peter. Yeah, yeah. And they had the Holy Spirit promised them by Jesus to guide them. So why was it really necessary? Because God believes leadership is necessary. So he pushed the pause button on the work of taking the gospel to the world initially to get one person on board. Because leadership matters. And it should matter to us as well. If somebody's going to learn how to lead, how do we do that? Again, it's servant leadership. So let's let's go back to the to the matter of teaching young men to lead public prayers and to lead singing or to preside at the Lord's table. All of those are important, but they're important because they help us worship God and they are doing a service to honor God. Yeah. Not because they need to be in front of a group. I've said this many, many times, you know, how many times, how many times do People, men in particular, men come into a into a church and they move to an area and they're looking for a church with which to worship and they look around and they say, Man, there's so many people here, it's not going to be much for me to do. And of course, what they what they mean by that is there's not going to be much for me to do publicly. 
And my, my thought about that, and, and I've said this publicly many times, imagine if the women in our church had that mindset. <laughs> because the women in our church, they're doing a thousand different things on a continual basis mm-hmm. that make a difference for good in the lives of others. But they're not doing it leading singing for us. And if that's our concept, if that's our concept of there's not much for me to do, then we've really missed something here. So we talk about that a lot. I talk about that. What did Jesus say? He said it three times. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, serve. Mm-hmm. And he said it three times that recorded. There's no telling how many other times he said it. <laughs> because that's what he did. That's the life that he lived and that he, that he calls us to, to live as well. I'll tell you what. In my house... Often I have to ask the boss what's going to go on today. <laughs> um, yeah. I might be a leader on some things, but one of the things that I recognize a lot is Katie keeps our house together. And and you want to call her a boss, you want to call her a leader, you want to call her a manager, I don't care. Mm-hmm. She and I make that family work. You espouse something called servant leadership, I think that is absolutely the right way to think about this. But there are other types of leadership as well. Um, what other kinds of leadership do you think actually work? Let me ask you, what, what kind of leaderships are, leadership models are you talking about? I'll go ahead and tell you. Uh, okay. Have you ever heard of French and Raven? Hmm. Okay. They're theorists from the 1950s or 60s, I can't remember which, where they came up with what they called the five bases of power. And one of those was coercion, force people to do something. One of those was called referent power. In other words, you like me, and because you Mm -hmm. like me, you're going to follow me. It's that kind of charisma. Uh, There's another one where you know uh, I have the I have the uh, I have the expertise, Mm -hmm. and so you're going to follow me because I know how the computer works, and you don't. So I mean, there are those kinds of leadership. Those are bases of power. But it seems to me almost every group of people kind of has more than one maybe currency of power is a better way to think about this right but but maybe also it's i, I think of this as is in some ways different leadership styles right <clears throat> let me just say a couple of things about that first i'm thankful that in so many of our churches now the first thing you mentioned coercion in so many of our churches now that is so out of place mm-hmm. that an individual trying to lead in that fashion would find himself taking a walk with nobody following. <laughs> it hasn't always been. I, I mean, I Kenny, the first place that I did local work when I, I, mean, I was green as grass. I mean, we, we had a coercive leader. He was clearly in charge. Yeah. People would say, oh, that's so-and-so's church. And you think, well, it's the Lord's church. You say, well, yeah, we know, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and we did. We all knew what they yeah, meant. Yeah. But, you know, thankfully now, that is so out of step. But those other areas, yes, absolutely. I mean, we, but, but think about that. Mm-hmm. In all those areas where individuals, whether it's persuasive power because we are friends, and so maybe I can influence you to, to, <clears throat> to do something in, in, a, in a more expedient way or a better way or or whether it is somebody who has expertise in some area, again, all those are extremely valuable. But they're all under that overarching matter of servant leadership. Yeah. We're, we're going to offer this as a servant with a servant's heart because we're wanting to serve our Lord. Mm-hmm. And so it all to me, it all comes back to that idea of servant leadership. It's kind of like in that list of character traits that Paul gave in, to Titus and to Timothy. You know, it, it began with Timothy with, he's got to be blameless. Mm-hmm. And I, and I just, I just see that as kind of the overarching umbrella and everything else is kind of under that, you know, mm-hmm. that in these areas and all these other areas, you're not going to be able to sustain an accusation about these things. It's, yeah. It all comes under that umbrella. And all of those to me come under that business of servant leadership, that, that whatever I'm doing, it's, it's under that, under that umbrella. In communication, we teach something called the, the conflict grid. Mm-hmm. And we talk about the five different responses you can have to a conflict. Right. The first one is avoidance. The second one is accommodation. The third one is is competition. The fourth one is compromise, and the fifth one is collaboration. Mm-hmm. And and the way that that textbooks often present that is that collaboration is obviously the only one that's worth worthwhile at all. 
but one of the things that I, I feel like I have to do in those in that course is basically redeem the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, there are times when you want to compete with your child because you have to win right. because they can't. And I, one of the things that I've thought a lot about is if the people that you're having to compete with, that you're having to compromise with, understand that you love them, that the motivation is love and it's not selfishness and it's not self-aggrandizement, then you can get away with that. Mm-hmm. If you can't, you can't get away with any of them. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, think about, I mean, if we, if we just go back to the, uh, if we go back to the master teacher, if we go back to the chief shepherd, yeah. And you think about the way that he dealt, let, let's, let's say just within the apostolic band. Uh, I mean, sometimes he treated them with kid gloves. Sometimes he was very blunt and plain spoken with them. Why? Well, because the circumstance required something different each time. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that those, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I, I will guarantee you, those 12 men, they knew that he loved them. No leadership is flawless, though, Don. Group think is one of those things that, can be pretty dangerous when you're in it. You don't know you are. Mm-hmm. How can we help leaders see their own limitations? That's a really good question. That's a, that is a, a great question. You know, group think causes us not to see beyond ourselves and not to see beyond the group that we're a part of. Right. Obviously it fosters my tendency toward myopic vision anyway, yeah. because I, I can only see through my eyes. But I do have to learn to see beyond the end of my nose. <laughs> Groupthink makes us fail to see our vulnerabilities. Because to be vulnerable, you have to be honest with yourself. You have to see. You have to be able to have that kind of internal vision. So when I think about that, when I do the shepherding workshops mm-hmm. and then work with deacons, I take them to the book of James. And I think James is the finest inspired leadership manual you will ever find. Mm-hmm. I take them to the book of James and say, you know what? If you look at the text in James as a leader and from it, ask yourself questions. It it will help you with that business of not being myopic, of not simply insulating yourself within within the group or within yourself. I say, look, when you look at the book of James, just ask yourselves the questions that, that he answers, although he doesn't phrase them at the point of a question. Do I understand who I am? That's the way he begins the book. I am James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand that's who you are? He could have said, I'm Jesus' brother. You need to listen to me. I'm a pillar in the church. You need to listen to me. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm the servant of Jesus Christ. That's who we all are. Do you understand that, that the service you're going to offer is not easy? He begins a book by saying, look, you just need to understand that in whatever circumstance you're in, there are going to be difficulties and trials. It's going to come your way. Do you understand that it's not if you're going to be tempted, it's when. Right. And as a leader in particular, our adversary, the devil, will try to strike at you. Mm-hmm. Think about, Kenny, how many churches have been brought to their knees or at least stopped in their tracks in the progress they were making because of the failure of a leader. And so we, we've got to be able to see ourselves honestly. Do we understand that we're called to lead by faith? You've got that whole section in James 2 where he talks about that. I mean, if, if you want a faith that's going to last, you've got to find a task. You've got to find a meaningful task. And if that's leading, if that's leading for you, then you've got to see that clearly, that it's not about you. It's not that groupthink mentality. But it's, it's seeing that this is your task to lead in a way that, again, if others follow you, they're going to they're gonna go to, hell, to heaven. And, and do you understand that if you become selfish or envious got a great problem he talked about that in james 3 the wisdom from above is one thing but the wisdom from the world that's envy and selfish that's about you that sees only you and so you could to me i just go through the book like that kenny and and to me that's the answer to that it helps you to get beyond yourself to see beyond yourself and understand that there is a bigger picture here that we're privileged we're privileged to be a to be a part of I read a book, and I can't remember if it was N.T. Wright or, or, or who it was, but, but he said the temptation of, of Protestant churches is that they are often personality-driven. For better or worse, the, the advantage of the Catholic Church 
is they will pop people in and out all day long. Yep. Uh, they don't hold on too tightly to one personality. What's the danger of being too personality driven within a congregation? It comes down to the, to the person in whom you're putting your faith and trust. Yeah. Is it the Lord Jesus Christ or is it one of his servants? true servant of Jesus Christ is somebody who will get out of the way and point people to Jesus. And that, that is the danger. If on the one hand, the church is so enamored by the personality that they can't see beyond that. Or on the other hand, the person who is in the public position is so enamored with his own personality and place and role that he doesn't want to get out of the way and let the light shine to Jesus. I mean, I, I understand my job, and it is, it is not for this or any other church to be about Don Truex. This is about Jesus Christ. We are a, I, I say this all the time. i said this a million times here. We're a church of Christ. What does that mean? It's not a name on a sign. It's a statement of who we believe we are, that we are people who belong to Christ, first, fundamentally, and always. Do you see any temptations or any real advantages to doing this kind of stuff, the, what I call digital discipleship? Well, there are tremendous advantages. Mm -hmm. I'm extremely grateful for what you do with this and what others do with their podcasts and with other things. I, you know, we were, we were talking earlier about the fact that, that there were some good things that came from COVID. Yeah. And, and one of the good things is that it pushed us out of our comfort zone in regard to technology. Yeah. And it made us much more proactive in finding ways to use technology for the furtherance of the gospel. And it's helped us with that <clears throat> tremendously. And for people like you and others who have expertise in that area, I am extraordinarily grateful. I want to tell you, man, I, I am thankful for every, every person who finds a way to use their talents in an effective way to further the kingdom of God. The danger is what it what it always is. It whether it's whether it's on a podcast, whether it's speaking to a lectureship of a thousand people, <clears throat> whether it's preaching in a church of thirty people in a country community in some obscure part of our country. The challenge is always the same. It's the heart. It's the heart of the person. And do you understand who you are in regard to your role and relationship to the Lord Jesus and to the people with whom you have an influence? Mm-hmm. It, it's a trust, Kenny. It's a, it's a, it's a trust. What you do is a trust. People are, people are trusting you in what you do. It's a trust with preachers in a pulpit. You know, with, with every intern that I've ever had, I've, I've talked to them about the importance of preparation for what you do on the Lord's day, mm -hmm. because where else are 50 people or a hundred people or 500 people? going to give you collectively 30, 40 minutes of their time. How do you keep grounded? That's a great question. When you gave me a little heads up that you were going to ask that, I, I, I gave that a lot of thought. How, how, how do you keep grounded? Most of us would start by saying, well, you know, our wife keeps us humble. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and there's, a, there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. There is a lot of truth in that. Uh, my answer to that question, Kenny, is that Every single day of this world, and, and let me offer this caveat, mm -hmm. this is as I've gotten older in my life. Because when you get older in life, you get, you get a better perspective. You begin looking back over the landscape of your life, and you see it from a different point of view than you did in the past. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that one of the things that keeps me grounded is that every single day I am amazed and I am humbled by the life the Lord has allowed me to live. Kenny, I, I have been allowed to do in my life more than I could have ever thought, more than I could have ever imagined. If today, if, if today the Lord said, hey, you know what, Don? Um, you're finished. I mean, you're just finished. You're never, you're never going to get to go anywhere else or do anything else. Your, your role, your work, you're, you're finished. You're done. I will have been able to, to enjoy doing more than I could have ever conceived. 
every day, I, I can't wait to be involved with my church family. Mm-hmm. This, this church keeps me grounded because I've been with them so long. I've been, I've been a part of their lives for so long and I love them so much. And I, I'm amazed that I get to continue to serve here with them. Those are the things, Kenny, that, that I think about It's I don't take any opportunity ever for granted. The advantage of, of the way that the leadership is in, in the church mm-hmm. is that before any beco- anybody becomes a leader, they first have to become a follower. Mm-hmm. What makes for an especially good follower? You know, several years ago, I, I read a little deal where somebody asked, they said, if, if any great men, were any great men born in this town? And the answer was, nope, only babies. <laughs> I kind of love that. <laughs> And, and I love that. I love that because that's all of us. I mean, that's all of us. Yeah. You know, I, we, we all, and again, age gives you some perspective about this, Kenny. Probably when we were young, we all probably all thought that we were more advanced than we actually were. And I look back at that as a preacher, and I'm so grateful for kind and patient brethren who let me make my mistakes who were kind about that. They offered me grace and mercy and they let me grow up. I look back and I, I believe absolutely that, that the providence of God put Vicki and me in the very early stage of our life together in a church that in essence adopted us, made us their kids. Our first child was born there. That became the church's grandchild and they let me grow up there. I spent years there and they let me grow up there. And I didn't really understand that's what was happening at the time. Mm-hmm. But now I look back and it's absolutely what was happening. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things that helps you be a good follower is that if you are fortunate enough, blessed enough in your life to have good mentors early on who give you perspective. I was so blessed when I was a young preacher, green as grass, there were a group of older preachers who took an interest in me and they, in essence, put their arms around me and they helped me. They were men that I could call about anything and knew that I was going to get wise counsel. Mm. And often they would, you know, they could clearly say to me, you know what, Don, you need to rethink that. You need to rethink that. And I look back at that now and I am so grateful for that. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what makes you a good follower is you're willing to take that kind of advice from people who've been down the road and over the course who have experience in life that you don't have as yet. Mm Mm-hmm. You've got to be willing to follow. Mm-hmm. And so often, especially when we're young, Kenny, we want to, we, we can't wait, wait to run when we really just need to walk. We just need to take it step by step and learn to make some progress that way. 18, 20 year old Don Truex mm-hmm. gets to talk to 65 year old Don Truex. Yeah. What is 65-year-old Don Truex telling 18-year-old Don Truex? First, Don, it's okay to say, I don't know. Because when I was a boy preacher, Kenny, I didn't understand that. Now I have no problem saying to somebody, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know the answer to that. I'll be glad to think about that, study about that, pray about that, and get back to you about that. Yeah. But I just don't know. Yeah. And I... I think when you're, when I was a young preacher, you're so intent on, especially when you are so young, trying to have some kind of standing with the people that you're working with, that you don't want to expose any vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Don Truex now knows that we all have vulnerabilities. We will have them for the rest of our lives, and we're better if we acknowledge them. And I think the other thing that I would have, I wish somebody would have told me when I was young, is that. You really don't have to try to be a Swiss Army knife. <laughs> you know, you just you can't do everything, so don't try. And and again, this is one of those areas, Kenny, that in our churches I think we're doing so much better with now. When I was a boy preacher, I think there was in many ways an expectation that you should be able to do anything. I mean, you should be able to teach the Bible class, you should be able to 
preach the sermon. You should be able to counsel individuals in crisis. You should be able to do evangelism like Kerry Keenan. You should be able, <laughs> you should be able to do everything. And I think we have such a more healthy understanding about that now. I think I know what I do well. But I think even more importantly, Kenny, I know what I don't do well. Mm-hmm. And I have no problem at all when I'm asked to do something and I know I don't do well. It doesn't bother me at all to say, hey, you know what? I, I appreciate you asking me to do that. I really do. But let me give you the name of somebody who can do that for you much better than I can. I don't have any problem with that at all. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I, those are those are just a couple of things that I I wish I would have known then. I will tell you one of the best pieces of advice I ever got when I was a boy preacher hmm. came from Robert Jackson. <clears throat> Robert. Yeah. Robert was good friends with my wife's grandfather, and so Vicky had been around him many times in her life, and so when we got married, he kind of took an interest in me. And I remember him telling me one time. He said, "Don," he said. He said, one of the best things you'll ever remember in life is that almost everything is cyclical in nature. And he said, you know, when things are going really great in a church, don't get too high. When they're not going so well, don't get too low. Just remember that that's that's part of the cycle. And he said, so often, you know, when things are in a lull in a church, the preacher thinks, well, I probably should leave. This is probably me. And he said, you just need to give it six months. (laughs) And he said, it's probably going to change. And he just said, remember that there's a cyclical nature to life and we, we have to remain balanced. We have to remain balanced in that. And I think that's one of the best things, Kenny, anybody ever told me. I've tried to remember that through all these years. In leadership, we're always talking about a group of people. We're not talking about one. And one of the things that you said earlier was that when you were a shepherd, you took pride in the fact that there that there wasn't one guy that basically was the leader of all the leaders. Mm-hmm. How do you get together with a bunch of guys in a room that all have a pretty good idea of the way they want things to go? How do you make the conflicts within that room turn into something that you all can be united around? I guess another way to ask exactly the same question is how do you make allowance for people and both their strengths and weaknesses within a group. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to give you a really great answer to this, Kenny. <laughs> uh, you know the question that the question that I've gotten through the years the most uh, as I visit with other churches is how do you all get anything done? How do you agree on anything? And I've tried to think about that to use the word quantify again. I've tried to quantify that, and I'm not sure that I can. I just know. That there has been a cooperative spirit. I don't know any other way to phrase it than that, Kenny. Yeah. There has been a cooperative spirit. Now, there are, within any group, there are dynamics. And and that's that's certainly true of this, this group as well. But again, what I've never seen is anybody with a spirit that says, look, it's going to have to be my way about this. Mm-hmm. Not seen that ever in all my years here. There's, there has always been. It doesn't mean that everybody always agrees on everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes the shepherds make decisions that I completely agree with. Sometimes they do. They make decisions that that I would I would prefer it gone in a different direction. Mm-hmm. But as I often say to the church, I have to remember I'm not the only one here. Mm-hmm. Neither are you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But there is a cooperative spirit that is, and and again, I I go back to certain words, Kenny, like we all do overarching and to me the overarching concern that i've always seen in the group of shepherds here is first of all we want to do what's right but secondly we want to do what's in the absolute best interest of this church family Mm -hmm. and so because of that you know personal will is often sublimated to what's in the best interest of the group if the men around this table and your listeners can't see that I'm motioning to the table at which we're sitting. <laughs> but if if the men around this table, if I put something on the table and I can pretty well tell that the consensus of the group is that this is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm I'm looking at about 200 years of shepherding experience. I'm not going to fuss with that. What I'm going to say is, I must be missing something here. I, I just don't always believe that 
my way is the only way or the best way. And I, and that's what I've seen in the group in that kind of, that attitude of, of consensus building. Would 18 year old Don have seen that? No, no, I would not. I, I look back, I look back, Kenny, at, at the first local work that I did. And mm-hmm. I, I always, every time I think about it, I feel like I need to go back and apologize to those people. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, year before last, I went back to the, the first church where I did local work it was in Mount Washington, Kentucky. And uh, I was back there again for a gospel meeting. And, and I told them in one of the sermons, I said, you know, I've thought many times that I just need to apologize. For those of you who were here when I was a boy, <laughs> I just need to say I'm sorry. And I want to apologize to you for some of the preaching that you listened to, because I look back at it, it was abysmal. And so, so no, there, there are things I would not have seen. I would not have seen. But you know, again, Kenny, that's one of those things that grace was offered to us, and we need to offer grace to others. You know, when I, when I work with the interns that I've had through the years, Kenny, I've, I've always tried to emphasize to them that be patient. I know that when you go to a local church, you're going to have a thousand ideas that you want to implement the first week you're there. Yeah. Be patient. I think, Kenny, in so many ways, our brethren, if, if I may say this, I think they are so much better at that now than maybe they were in the past. You see grace extended and understanding extended. I see it all the time in this church family. We probably had a hundred college kids worship with us this yeah. year. Well, you know what? They're not always going to say the right thing publicly. Of course not. Yeah. They're not always going to. They're not always going to dress the way the way that I might dress when I come to worship. Yeah. But I tell you what. What I see is grace extended to them, and that's that's the way that should be. Do you think the church changed, or do you think you changed? Well, probably both. I think our local church is Kenny. This this is a broad statement, and I, and I don't mean it to be broad. I understand. Okay. <clears throat> I see so much good in our brethren around the country. I see so many churches whose leadership are determined to not be a board of directors, but to be true shepherds of sheep. I see brethren who are determined to serve each other in humble, under-the-radar ways, where they're making a difference for good in the lives of others, and they don't care if anybody knows or not because they're serving the Lord Jesus. I think that there is, in so many of our churches, a deeper understanding of what it means to truly be a child of God, to be a Christian, and to be a servant, than perhaps was in the past. I, and I don't mean that as a blanket statement where there wasn't any of that. I, please don't misunderstand me on that. Right. I do believe that we perhaps have a clearer understanding of what we are truly about, what matters, that we are people, you quoted D a minute minute ago, you know, who are trying to get to heaven Mm -hmm. because we don't want to miss that, who love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and are not afraid or ashamed to say that and to live that. I just think there is so much that is so good among the people of God. When I hear or read of people talking about our young people being a generation lost, and I, I'm sorry, I just don't see that. I just don't see that, Kenny. Who teaches you now? You know, the text talks about as iron sharpens iron. Mm-hmm. And I am very fortunate that while I have many, many friends, particularly in the work that I do, I have, I have especially three preaching fellows who teach me, instruct me, they motivate me they help keep me grounded and they are outside of my wife vicky my three closest friends in the world they have done this work for the same length of time that i have and to me they are the living illustration of friends who are closer than a brother i I would say if you ask me who who's going to teach me those those come immediately to mind that's that's beyond the, the typical answer that the answer we would all give, you know, well, well, God teaches me, his word teaches me and, and, and beyond that, um, 
My church family teaches me. I learn something from these people all the time. I'm in a circumstance now where, unlike the first 40 plus years of my preaching life, now I get to listen to somebody else preach. That's good for me. I need to listen to others. Now, technology has made that possible. Whereas when I, you know, for the first many, many years of my preaching life, if, if you wanted to hear somebody else preach, it was, it was a task. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a task. And now of course it's not. And, and I find great value in that. I like to listen to other preachers. I, I learn from them. And, and to me, Kenny, that is, that is absolutely invaluable. I learn from the shepherds of this church. These are wise men. They're good men. And uh, they're men that I trust and that I, and that I love. And, and I want to say this. I want to say this on your, your podcast because I know you've got a, a lot of young preachers who listen to you as, as well they should. You've had a tremendous cadre of young preachers who you've talked to on this, on this podcast. I want to tell you, I, I am happy to learn from some of the young preachers among our brethren. Yeah. I, I tell you, Kenny, I, we have got so many young preachers right now who are so knowledgeable. They've immersed themselves in the word of God. They're so talented and yet they are so humble. And that is a formidable combination for good. You know, I, I listen to some of these, some of these men, I think about, we're going to have an event here at Temple Terrace in September, call it weekend in the word. And, and we're going to have some young men like, like Ben Hall. Mm-hmm. Daniel Broadwell. And we're going to have, uh, from our area, uh, Josh Creel. Mm-hmm. And, and I know Josh isn't really a, but compared to me, he's a young guy. <laughs> <clears throat> and, you know, I think about, I think about Caleb Churchill and Bill Sanchez. And I, I think about these guys. I listen to them and I think, wow, they, they are beyond their years. And I thank God for every single one of them. So they teach me. They teach me. I listen to them and I, I learn from them and from their insight. Mm-hmm. All of us tend to, to look at things a certain way, particularly over time. And, and these, these young guys help me see from a better perspective and from a different perspective yeah. than I sometimes would. I end all of my podcasts with be good and do good. Yep. What is good? You know, I know you end your podcast that way. And I, I thought about that. You ever think about all the ways we use that phrase? That's exactly the reason I chose it. <laughs> yeah. I got to thinking about that. I, I jotted down. It's all good. I'm living a good life. The Marines are looking for a few good men. Those were good times. He's as good as gold. Good for you. So far, so good. And my favorite is Charlie Brown. Good grief. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think Kenny, most people would probably say, well, you know, God, God said, here's, here's what's good. Micah 6.8, you know, do justice, love. Walk humbly with your God. Love mercy. But when I think about it, the verse that I think about in the Bible, to me, is 1 Peter 3, 10, 11. He that would love life and see good days. Who doesn't want that? Right. Let him keep his tongue from evil. Boy, that helped most of us. It helped me. Yeah. You know, his lips from speaking to see. And secondly, let him turn away from evil and do good. And third, seek peace and pursue it. If we could learn to watch our words, watch our steps, and to watch our relationships with others and be a pretty good life. That's good to me. Don, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it, man. Ah, listen, I enjoyed it very much. Kenny. I appreciate you and appreciate what you're doing very much. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Don alluded to this, but I've known him a while. He's a skilled evangelist, but also a very good guy. Yet this is the first time we had a discussion like this. And I regret that. He understands leadership well, but he's also optimistic about Christianity and Christians. I think a conversation like this tells me we should do a little more digging in our backyards to see the treasures we often overlook every day. Don, thank you for helping us understand leadership and a Christian perspective on the world better. I love what you do and who you are. As for the good thing I'm thinking about, it's been a week since we finished the lecture series. During the event, I was busy overseeing the digital discipleship track, so I wasn't able to hear most of the speakers. I knew the guys who spoke for me did great, but I didn't realize how good others did as well. So you know, 
I plan to release some of the lectures as bonus episodes of the podcast during the year, and probably put some of the videos in the Facebook group as well. I just want to say one more time, thank you to everyone who made this possible. The six coordinators, the 47 speakers, and nearly 150 people who attended. That was something else, and I felt like it was a very good thing. I also want to thank those who financially support the program, like Kevin Hansen, Chris Kramer, Don Dietschy, Sean Highfill, George Sanchez, Barbara McQueen, my parents, and our troublemaker, Ann Hoover. You guys really do make this possible. So until next time, let's be good and do good. <laughs>